Uh, I was looking in the week, uh, I looked up uh, Wikipedia, uh, and it defines uh, the great Australian dream uh, as the belief that home ownership can lead uh, to a significantly better life. Right? Home ownership uh, is an expression of status, of success, of real security. Uh, so despite, uh, as we constantly hear in the news, despite the, the massive increases in house prices in our own country, particularly in the major capital cities, uh, this great Australian dream still has a real grip on our hearts. At least I think it does. Uh, we know that but because many Australians, whether they're Christians or not, uh, make their biggest sacrifices, sacrificing their time, uh, their money, uh, sacrificing their energy, uh, sacrificing all sorts of things to realise their dream, uh, uh, to realise this great Australian dream, their dream of own, owning uh, their own home, uh, perhaps even their dream home. Uh, many Australians, whether they're Christians or not, sacrifice relationships with family or friends. They sacrifice their career even, their work, their preferred work uh, colleagues. Uh, they, they sacrifice their church community because they want to buy their own home and it's cheaper to buy somewhere else. We say it all the time, don't we? This great Australian dream has a real grip on our hearts. It's often the driving force of big decisions we make in our lives. And on one level, of course, there's nothing wrong with that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with owning your home, even with owning your dream home. Don't hear me saying that. It's perfectly fine. Uh, but the sad thing about this great Australian dream is that it just doesn't work, right? It doesn't work. It doesn't deliver on the promises. It, it, it espouses, right? I've watched enough grand designs uh, to know... Uh, that even if you have your own home, uh, even your dream home, uh, you'll never really be satisfied. You've seen these people. They sacrifice everything. They blow their budget. They blow the time frame. They're sitting in their home and they are miserable. Absolutely miserable most of the time because a bit of, you know, tile is out by five millimetres, you know? Like that's this is the kind of people. Anyway, so they're in their home, their dream home. And they still have this inner sense of restlessness, don't they? Of dissatisfaction, a sense that even though they're in their home, their dream home, they're not really at home. And I guess what I'm saying today is that's because they're not at home spiritually. Right? Their hearts are wandering from God. Uh, St. Augustine, he wrote a book called uh, Confessions. Uh, and in that, one of the most famous quotes is this. He says, uh, You have made us for yourself, O Lord. So our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. You hear that? He says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, so our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. So what that means is, despite all the promises of the great Australian dream, uh, we will never really feel at home until our hearts are at home with God. So today, what I'm hoping is, rather than our hearts being captured by some dream home in this world, I'm hoping to, to unpack this passage in such a way that our hearts are captured by this, our ultimate home, right? the, the home of heaven, our home with God. Uh, I want us to see five things about this home, five things in this passage. You can see them all in the outline. Uh, the first thing I want us to see is the radical newness of our home. Uh, this is in chapter 21, verses 1 to 8. It's where we're going uh, to spend the bulk of our time. Don't freak out. You're kind of like, man, he's been talking about these eight verses for 20 minutes. And uh, how, you know, how long is this sermon going to take? So we're going to spend most of our time here, right, in verses 1 to 8. Uh, in many ways, the summary of verses 1 to 8 is verse 5. Have a look at verse 5. Uh, God is sitting on his throne. 
I remember he was there way back in Revelation 4. He's always sitting on his throne, sitting on his throne, ruling over his world. And he says, I am making everything new. That's a summary of this section, right? God is making a completely new creation, a new heavens and new earth. So if you look at verse 1, John sees this vision. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Uh, this uh, quote here fulfills a promise that God made way back in the time of Isaiah. Right? Isaiah chapter 65, if you're a quick Bible flicker, you can flick to Isaiah 65, verse 17. Isaiah 65, verse 17, God says, uh, Behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. Uh, the former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, God says, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. Uh, and notice this transition. He says, for I will uh, create, um, uh, create Jerusalem. We're going to get to Jerusalem in a second. Right? I'll create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. You can hear Revelation 21 all over that, right? That, that is a promise that God made uh, 700 years before Christ was born. Uh, and now at the end of the age, Christ has returned. Uh, God is fulfilling his promise. He, he's creating this new heaven and new earth. And perhaps for some of you that raises a question. Uh, what's the relationship going to be between this heavens and earth and the new heavens and earth? Well, how are they connected? And the truth is, it's a bit hard to answer that. We don't have lots of detail. Uh, but one thing we do know a bit about is the relationship between these physical bodies that we have now and the glorified bodies we'll have in the future. Uh, so once again, if you, if you can flick over to uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15. You might want to flick over to 1 Corinthians. And there's the Gospels at the start of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, chapter 15. Uh, Paul says from verse 35, we're going to read some verses here, about our, our resurrection bodies, if you're a Christian, from verse 35. Uh, but someone will ask, Paul says, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps that of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body, as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Right, we'll skip a few verses down to verse 42. Uh, Paul says this about the resurrection body. He says, the body that is sown is perishable, that's this body, but it's raised imperishable. Uh, it's sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, but raised in power. It's sown as a natural body, but it's raised as a spiritual body. So in, when we read these verses about our resurrection bodies, I think Paul is clear on two things. The first thing he's clear about is that our physical bodies will not be completely destroyed. So the physical body that you are sitting here in today, in many ways, that body will continue on for eternity. It won't be completely obliterated, annihilated. They won't be completely destroyed. But the second thing Paul's clear on is that our physical bodies will be radically transformed. A bit like the transformation of a seed becoming a plant. 
You saw that illustration, the, 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 the seed sown, and there's a real connection between that seed and the plants, but it's radically different, isn't it? Radically different. And Paul's saying that's what it's like with our, uh, with our resurrection bodies. There'll be this connection there, so it's not complete disconnection, uh, but it's radical transformation. Uh, so I think this gives us the best insight into Revelation 21. Right? Much like our physical bodies, I think we can be clear that this physical creation that we live in now will not be completely destroyed, annihilated, blown to bits. Right? It'll continue on for eternity. But not just as it is. Right? Radical transformation, like a seed going to a plant. Radical transformation, so much so that what emerges on the other side can legitimately be called a new heavens and new earth. If you want to chase that up, you can read uh, 2 Peter chapter 3. And notice the connection between, uh, Peter there draws the connection uh, between the world before the flood and the world after the flood. They're, they're both the same world, but there's been a radical transformation happening. Happen. Why don't you can read 2 Peter chapter 3. But this new heavens and new earth, it's so new, uh, notice there that there won't even be any sea in it. That's an interesting comment, right? Here in Australia, uh, we, many of us live by the sea. Uh, we love the, the ocean. We're beach lovers. We're, we're kind of big fans of the sea. Uh, but that is not the Jewish people at all. Right? They didn't like the sea. They were land lovers. Uh, and so in Jewish apocalyptic, the sea is always a symbol of sin and chaos and evil and, and everything that's bad about this world. Uh, so you remember, we've seen that the, 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 the dragon, a symbol of Satan, where did it come from? It came out of the sea. Where did the beast come from? Out of the sea, right? So the, the, the sea is the symbolic source of all evil in this world. And so when John says there's no more sea, don't panic if you like surfing. He's not, he's not kind of commenting on the geographical features of the new heavens and new earth, really. He's saying this world is so new uh, that evil and sin and everything that we hate about this world has been completely abolished. Right? That the symbolic source of all evil isn't even in this world. That's the point. So our ultimate home as Christians is this radical new uh, physical creation. That's worth noting. Right? There are many uh, religions, forms of spirituality that would see ultimate salvation, ultimate home uh, as being an escape from this evil physical world. What you have to do is detach from this world so that you can go and, and float around on a cloud or be in nirvana or reach enlightenment. All right? they're, they're kind of down on the physicality of this world and the aim is to escape, to uh, detach yourself from passions that might connect yourself to this world. That's not Christianity. Christianity from the, the beginning to the end of the Bible is thoroughly positive about God's physical creation. And I think that's wonderful news, this new heavens and new earth, because it means that in eternity I'll be able to run and jump and dance because I'm such a tremendous dancer. Right? You'll be all looking forward to that. Right? I'll be able to dance. I'll be able to hold the hands of people that I love. I'll be able to sit down and, and eat and drink with them at a wonderful banquet, at God's great banquet table. Right? I'll be able to give people I love a hug. Because this new creation, our ultimate home, is a physical creation. A wonderful physical creation. A new heavens and a new earth. That's verse 1. And look in verse 2. There's more. right? John says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. 
So here we've got this new Jerusalem. I said, remember Isaiah 65, new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem. I've got them both here. New Jerusalem, a holy city coming down from heaven to the new heavens and earth. And notice the mixed metaphor, right? We see this again uh, in verses 12, and 14, uh, 12 to 14. Uh, the holy city is also a bride. Right? It's a bit like Revelation 5, right? Uh, the, the, the angel took John uh, to look at the lion, but then he sees a lamb that was slain. You remember that in Revelation 5? It's not that there's a lion and a lamb. It's that the lion is the lamb. Well, that's what's going on here, right? It's not that there's a bride and a city. It's that somehow the bride, yeah, the, the city is the bride, right? They're both symbols of God's people. In fact, you could say that Revelation is a tale of two cities. Someone wrote a book about that, didn't they? Tale of anyway, a tale of two cities, right? So you remember we've got uh, Babylon, right? The city revolving around the worship of human glory. And now you've got this city, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, revolving uh, around God's glory. And connected to those two cities, you have the tale of two women. You remember the, the great prostitutes, symbolizing the, the world system uh, designed to seduce people, uh, God's people in particular, away from him. And now this bride, God's people, who by his grace have been faithful to him, who haven't been seduced, who've persevered to the end. A tale of two cities, a tale of two women. And if you think back to Genesis chapter 1, uh, you might remember that at the end of the chapter, that the crowning glory of God's first creation uh, was humanity created in his image. Right at, right at the end of chapter, Genesis chapter 1. Likewise here, we see that the crowning glory of God's new creation, the new heavens and new earth, is his people, his glorious bride. And doesn't it make particular sense if you think about this as a wedding? right? A, a, a bit like a, a marriage uh, between God and his bride. Uh, Gabby and I got married on a, in a beautiful garden. It was a wonderful setting. Uh, I think I'm remembering it right. Uh, there was kind of an olive grove over to the right, uh, some real tall conifer trees at the back, perfect for hiding the bride when she arrived. Uh, there were uh, you know, rose petals on the ground and rose gardens over there and ribbons along the aisle. It was, it was an incredible, uh, incredibly beautiful setting. Uh, but isn't it true that all that is just setting the scene for what people are really waiting for? It's a nice setting, but what people are really there for is the arrival of the bride. And that's what's going on here. right? The new heavens and new earth in verse 1 are just setting the scene for the main event. The arrival of God's glorious bride. His people. His people who he loves. His people who are radically new spiritually and morally. Radically new. I don't know, I, I, I don't think I'm alone in this, but I often get really frustrated with myself. I'll have a conversation with someone and I really wish that I didn't speak to them in the way I did. I really wish that I didn't wrestle with that weakness or that sin anymore. I wish that my motivations for doing things, even good things, were more pure. It's not that I can't see God uh, at work in my life, changing me at all. I, I can see those things, but I, man, I do really, really long to be free from sin. 
I long to be free from sin, to, to never, ever have to say sorry to someone ever again. That'd be great. To never have to ask for anyone's forgiveness ever again. To never have to have that, that hard kind of a hard conversation. To be completely free of any moral blemish at all, any imperfection, any failure. I, I long for that. And so this verse, this verse 2, Revelation 21 verse 2, is a massive encouragement, isn't it? God has prepared his bride beautifully. That's not really talking physically, that's talking about our character. It's saying on this day, we as God's bride will, will reflect the incredible beauty of his character. In every way that we can possibly be like God, we will be like God. We won't be omnipotent, right? all-powerful over all things, but in terms of his character, we will be exactly like him. Right? In fact, down in verse 11, uh, you see there in verse 11 uh, that we're going to radiate, shine with the very glory of God. Verses 18 to 21, uh, our beauty is going to be so breathtaking that the best John can do is describe us as being, it's like we're, we're covered in all sorts of precious jewels radiating with God's glory. Right? In this radically new creation, we as God's people will also be radically new, spiritually, morally new. Right? It's not like God's just going to go up the street and get a bit of cheap cover-up makeup and, and kind of do, do a few tweaks on, on a few of our moral blemishes. I've got a bit of a moral pimple there. I've got to tidy that up a bit for you. you know, we need an extreme makeover. And God is committed to that. Spiritually and morally will be more beautiful than you can ever imagine, radiating with the very glory of God. And look at verse 4. Not, not just morally new, but physically new. Right? In, this altar, in our ultimate home, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Now, for some of you, that's really not that big a deal. You know, that's nice, but I'm young, I'm fit, I don't experience that much pain. You will. Like, you will. But for others here, maybe like me, this really speaks to you now. Or perhaps like me, you struggle with some kind of physical disability. I long to walk in here on a Sunday afternoon. I don't imagine, I don't know if the AAL will be here in the new heavens and new earth, but I long to walk in here on a Sunday afternoon and not have to kind of rush to turn on all the lights so that I can see to get around, particularly in daylight savings. Right? I long for my eyes to be completely healed. That would be great. Maybe you've got a physical disability or maybe you've got, uh, you struggle with chronic emotional issues. Anxiety, depression, you, you get debilitating migraines, you, you get acute back pain right down the sciatic nerve. You know, that, that's a real killer. Uh, some of you perhaps have an autoimmune disease that, that's kind of literally attacking your body. But these are debilitating things. We struggle with these things, and it, so it's wonderful that in our ultimate home, well, there'll be none of that. No mourning or crying or pain. We just read some of those verses from 1 Corinthians 15. Physical bodies made completely new. And what's the, the purpose of this new creation, of us being made radically new? Look at verse 3. John says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. 
and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Uh, In Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 27, there's a bunch of places where this happens, but Ezekiel 37, verse 27, uh, Ezekiel prophesied that one day God's people would enjoy this kind of relationship with him. Uh, So Ezekiel uh, 37, 27, God's dwelling place will be with his people and he will be their God and they will be his people. The whole purpose of this radically new transformed creation is that God might be at home, God might dwell with his people, that God might be at home with you, his precious child, that you might be at home with him. That's the purpose of it all. And God wants us to be assured that this is going to happen. So look at verse 5. He says, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. Right? You can stake your life on this, God's saying. Verse 6, uh, he says, it is done. Uh, some of you might remember from the cross, Christ cried out, it is finished. Right? The debt for sin has been fully and finally paid, he was saying. Uh, but now the cry is, it is done. Right? It's not just that the debt for sin has been paid, but that Satan and sin and death have been completely destroyed. Well, we saw that in, in, in chapter 20. Chapters 19 and 20. And look, we can be assured that this will happen. Verse 6, because the one who says this is the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. The point is that the one who says, I'm making everything new, rules over all history. The beginning and the end and everything in between. So no one can stop him doing what he wants. There's no council that's going to get in the way of him getting building permits for his new heavens and new earth, right? Like he, he, No one can thwart his purposes. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He will create this new heavens and new earth to enjoy with his glorious bride. But like all weddings, right? we've just seen a, a royal wedding a few weeks back. Like all weddings, uh, this wedding has a guest list. And surely, of course, you know, you've got to uh, mix in certain circles to get an invite to the royal wedding, uh, perhaps to Stu and Sharon's wedding. We've heard about that. You know, it's a very elite invite. Uh, but what about this wedding? Oh, this is the perfect wedding, the ultimate wedding. Uh, surely you have to be quite uh, religious and good and moral and respectable to get an invite to this wedding. Oh, that's not the case, is it? Right, have a look at verse 6. God says, in verse 6, anyone can come to this wedding as long as you recognize you need to come. You can come as long as you recognize you need to, right? As long as you recognize that, spiritually speaking, you're thirsty. There's something missing in your life. More accurately, there's someone missing from your life. It's God. That's the big qualification for getting into this wedding. Still, even if you do recognize you need God, you recognize that there's something missing, uh, surely to be a guest at this wedding is going to be pretty costly, right? It's going to take great sacrifice. But that's the best bit. Look at verse 6. God says, if you're thirsty and you want to come to this wedding, he'll give you the water of life. The water of life, that's a symbol of this deep satisfaction that only comes from knowing God. So God says, he'll give you this water of life for nothing for free, without cost, God says. How is that possible? 
How is it possible that that sinful and and weak and, and shameful people like you and me can be at this glorious wedding without cost? It's because Christ, the Lamb of God, has already paid the cost for this wedding. He's foot the bill. Remember, he cried out from the cross, I am thirsty. I'm thirsty. Because on the cross, Christ was separated from his Father, bearing the sins that we deserve. So that if we trust in him, we can drink this, this water of life that we don't deserve. Being at this wedding, enjoying that this ultimate home is a free gift for you and I, but it costs Christ everything. And then there's verse 8, which is pretty intense, isn't it? But it's a warning to everyone who rejects God's invitation. It's a warning. It's clear that if you don't accept that Christ has paid the price for your sins in your place on the cross, there will be a day when you have to pay the price for your sins. So accept the invitation. It's going to be a good food, water of life. So that's the radical newness of this home. Uh, Yep. I just think if you want to set your, set your sights on a dream home, this is the one. Anyway, uh, but what about the, the symbolism of the home? That might seem a bit odd because uh, there's symbolism all through this. Uh, but uh, there are a few symbols in verses 9 to 21, uh, three in fact, that I want to draw attention to just briefly. Uh, the first in verses 12 to 14, uh, notice how many times the number 12 happens there. Right? The angel's taking John on a tour of the city uh, and... Um, John notices that there are 12 gates in the city, uh, each gate having the name of one of the 12 tribes of Israel on it. And then he notices that the city has 12 foundations, each foundation having the name of one of the 12 apostles. The point of this is that this city is the home of all of God's people. That's why there's all of God's people in the Old Testament, hence the 12 tribes of Israel, all of God's people in the New Testament, hence the 12 apostles. Either the fullness, the completeness of God's people is in this city. And you say, but how can they all fit in? That's what you're all thinking, isn't it? Maybe not, but anyway, that leads to the second thing. Verses 15 to 17, where the angel takes out his measuring rod. You see that there? He's showing John the dimensions of this city. And it's an odd city. right? It's shaped like a cube. And it's a very big city. 12,000 stadia. Now, uh, once again, it is like the sea. It's not that... John's literally saying, speaking about the measurements, right? But the, to give you an idea, 12,000 stadia is 2,200 kilometres. That is further than the distance between Melbourne and Brisbane. Well, that, that's a very, very big city. And the point of that is not for you to work out oh, exactly how big the city's going to be and, and kind of work out how many people could you fit in there. Like, no, the, the point is that there's going to be more than enough room to accommodate everyone who accepts the invitation. All of God's people will be able to fit. But why is it a cube? Why is this city a cube, 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia? Well, once again, if you've got a Bible, you could flick back to 1 Kings chapter 6. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 6. Uh, we're going to read from verse 19. 1 Kings chapter 6 from verse 19. Uh, the context here, Solomon's building the temple, uh, particularly the, the inner sanctuary of the temple, what's called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. Uh, the place where God's presence actually came and dwelt in a special way. 
Right, so 1 Kings chapter 6, uh, from verse 19, uh, we read this. Uh, Solomon prepared the inner sanctuary within the temple to set the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord there. Uh, and notice that the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. It's a cube, right? A cube, right? In the Old Testament, the inner sanctuary, the place where God's glorious presence dwelled, was a cube, 20 by 20 by 20. So, so when we get to Revelation 21 and see John kind of laboring the point with this angel with his measuring rod, why establish that the new heavens, this, uh, this new Jerusalem, is going to be a cube? The point is that the whole city has become the holy of holies. Either the glory, the, the, um, God's glorious presence fills this city in an incredibly unique and unheard, a previously unheard of way. He really is with his people. That's the point. Which brings us to the missing features in the home. You know, when you're looking up on a kind of domain or something and it's got all the features, they don't usually list the missing features, right? But you know when you go and visit, you know. Anyway, so missing features. What are the in verses 22 to 27? We've already seen some things are missing. The sea, death, mourning, crying, pain, those things are missing. We're probably not going to miss them that much, right? Uh, likewise, verses 22 to 27, uh, there are some missing things. For example, verse 22, no temple in this city. What do you need a temple for when the whole city has become God's temple? When God himself is the temple, God's glory fills the city. No need for a temple. Right, in verse 23, no need for the sun, the light of God's glory, and the Lamb give this city light. So much light, verse 25, that there's no night in this city. Right, you'd have nightmares of living in Scandinavia and kind of being like, you know, in the land of the midnight sun. Anyway, don't, don't panic. You, 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 won't like, you, won't, uh, you won't not even need to sleep. I don't know, will we need to sleep? Anyway, I'm talking very quick. The point is that with all these missing features, we're going to have previously unheard of access to God unrestricted, unmediated, unfettered access to God. No temple, no priests, no barriers at all. Which brings us to the heart of the home. We sometimes use this expression, don't we, that the heart of the home is the kitchen, the heart of the home is the living room where the family gathers to watch telly or the, the dining room where you share meals together. Whatever it is, the heart of the home. Well, what's the heart of this heavenly home? Look, in chapter 22, verses 1 to 3, it's this river of life. Well, that takes us back to Ezekiel 47, if you want to look it up later on. Ezekiel 47, Ezekiel has a, a vision of a river flowing out from God's temple. He says there, I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple. The water was coming down from under the south side, excuse me, the south side of the temple. And then once again, there's an angel with a measuring rod. It's getting deeper and deeper, this water. The point is that there's plenty of water to go around. And then in verses 7 to 12, he sees the river bringing life and healing. It's bringing blessing to everything, everyone that it touches. Revelation 22 is a fulfillment of Ezekiel's vision. This river of life is a symbol of God's glorious presence. Right? We've already had God's presence that fills this city. God's presence that brings life and healing and, and abundant blessing to everyone and everything 
in this place. And so the ultimate blessing of being in this home is the blessing of being with God, of, of drinking in His glorious presence. And that's verse 4, isn't it? John says we will see God's face. That's the climax. We will see God's face. Are there some amazing visions of God in the Old Testament? Or read Isaiah chapter 6 later on. Isaiah sees God seated on his throne, high and exalted. Of course, the truth is, Isaiah doesn't describe God that much at all. He describes everything around God in lots of detail, but he doesn't really see God. The same for Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 1. They don't see the glory, the full glory of God. Not so for us, you and I, because the heart of this home is that we'll see God's face. I suspect for some of you that's, I don't know, maybe it's a bit anticlimactic. The truth is, if you were longing to, to go to this heavenly home at all, it was because you long to see people that you miss, loved ones. It was because you want to be free from sin or, or physical pain or emotional pain or, or weakness. Right? Those, those are the main reasons why you long to be in heaven. And there's nothing wrong with longing for those things. They're, we've already seen they're, they're wonderful gifts that God will give his people. But the heart of, that, but the heart of this home is not those gifts, but the giver of the gifts. It's God himself. The greatest gift that God could give us is not some other thing but himself. It's St. Augustine. God knows that he made us for himself, that, we, that he made us for himself to love him, to worship him, to adore him, to delight in him. And so the heart of our ultimate home is that we would see his face. That we'd be just to give you a picture, we'd be so close to him. Remember back in Revelation 21, so close to him that he'd be able to wipe away tears. I mean, that's pretty close. Like sometimes my children are crying so much that that's pretty tragic. You know, they're crying so much that there's actually a little tear kind of sitting on their cheek, and and you have to get you have to get right in there close, don't you, to kind of wipe a tear away. That's the kind of intimacy with God. He'll see our face. We'll see His face. And it'll be glorious. What assurances do we have of this? What guarantees? That, that's the end of the chapter uh, that uh, Rob didn't read. But verses 6 to 21, uh, there are four main guarantees. I'm going to be pretty quick in this section. Four main guarantees. Uh, the first in verse 6 is another guarantee that the words God has spoken in this book are trustworthy and true. Right? They will come to pass soon. And one of those words that is guaranteed is that Jesus is coming soon. Well, we see that at least three times in this. Uh, verse 7, Jesus says, look, I am coming soon. Uh, chapter 22, verse 12, he says, look, I am coming soon. Uh, verse 20, he says, yes, I am coming soon. You think he's trying to make a point. He's coming soon. There, there's nothing else left to be done before Jesus comes back. That's the point. His, his coming back could happen at any moment. And when he comes, this is the third thing that's guaranteed, he's coming as God's king to judge. 
Right, so verse 16, Jesus describes himself as the root and offspring of David, the bright morning star. Uh, those are both kind of code, if you look up the Old Testament references, a code for saying, I am God's king. And I'm coming soon to establish God's eternal kingdom to, to bring about uh, this glorious new home. And in verses 12 and 13, uh, we see that when Jesus comes as God's king, he's going to judge everyone. We can be assured of that, you see there, because like God, Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. Notice that he takes the same title as God. Jesus is not just some man, even a powerful man. He's God himself. He's coming as the Alpha and Omega. He rules over all of history. Uh, so that these are the three things so far. We can trust God's word. Uh, we can trust that Jesus is coming as God's king and that he's coming to judge. Uh, and verses 10 and 11 and verses 14 and 15 say uh, that in many ways, Jesus' judgment starts now. It starts now. Yes, there's a final judgment, but as we sit here today, all of us are on one of two paths. Oh, this is verses 10 and 11, verses 14 and 15. Right? Either we're following Christ, living his way, doing what is right, in which case we're headed towards God's eternal blessing, this glorious new home. Or we're rejecting Christ, living our own way, doing what is wrong, in which case we're on a different path headed towards God's eternal judgment. Right? These things are guaranteed. That's the point of this last section of Revelation. You can stake your life on this. So we really should heed the warning in verses 18 and 19. Don't add or take away from this book. Because if you do, God will take you away from this glorious home. Right? You'll have no part in God's home. It's his home. He decides the terms that you get in, just like your home. Not anyone gets in, and it's your right to kick people out. Well, this is God's home. There's a warning there in verses 18 and 19. Instead, verse 17, accept God's invitation. It's not that hard. It's just come. He says, come three times in these verses. Come to him, knowing that your heart will only find its rest, its home, are not in this world, uh, but in knowing him. I don't allow your heart to, to be captured by this uh, world in such a way that you make this world your home, but that you live for this ultimate home where you'll be finally at home with your Lord. Which is why the last words here are, Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Because we know that this world is not our home and we long to be at home with our Lord. Uh, let's pray. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for... Uh, this incredible passage that gives us a great vision of our ultimate home. Uh, we do pray that you would capture our hearts with this vision, uh, that we would live for this home, our ultimate home, uh, and not for uh, this world or for any particular home in this world. Uh, that we would see ourselves as pilgrims passing through this world. Uh, Father, I pray for each one here that we would... Uh, come to you, acknowledge our thirst uh, and embrace your invitation to receive this water of life, the deep satisfaction that comes from knowing you. Uh, help us to feel the restlessness, the thirst in our hearts and to come to you. And for those of us who have already done that, I pray that we'd be persevering on that path of trusting Christ, uh, doing what is right and looking forward to the eternal blessing of this home where we'll be made radically new in every way. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.